This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge, Discover the Ancient Secret to Experiencing Worry-Defeating, Circumstance-Defying Happiness, written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey everyone, Season 3 wrapped up our discussion of how the rise of communism impacted the American Christian Church. Go back and listen to it when you're done with this episode. It's really good stuff. I hope you enjoy. The book we're discussing today starts with a really startling statistic. In the 1700s, something like three-quarters of all the people in the world were in some form of bondage. Three-quarters of all people. The 1770s, 1780s. The voice you heard there is our guest, Adam Hochschild. I'm a writer. I have written uh, 10 books, uh, almost all of them in one way or another connected with issues of human rights and social justice. King Leopold's Ghost, The Mirror at Midnight, The Unquiet Ghost, To End All Wars, and the one we're talking about today is Bury the Chains. Anyhow, so we're talking about the late 1700s, when the United States was in its infancy. In the Americas, there were millions upon millions of of slaves of African descent. P.S. A bunch of the founding fathers owned slaves, even George Washington. Not just in what today is the United States, but in even larger numbers in the West Indies. Basically what we'd now call the Caribbean islands. It was there that many of Europe's strongest countries had plantations, Britain, Spain, France, But slavery wasn't just in the West Indies and in the United States. It was all over the world. Here is a little overview of that reality. In Africa itself, most of the continent south of the Sahara Desert were slave societies. And that's why European and American slave ship captains sailing up and down the west coast of Africa could so easily find captives to buy. Ugly, but true. Africans also enslaved each other. Putting people into bondage seems to be one of the defining marks of human history across cultures. There was also a vigorous trade from the east coast of Africa to the Arab and Islamic world carrying slaves there. People in India and China were held in debt bondage to landowners. Not quite slavery, but bondage nonetheless. In Russia, most people were serfs. Meaning they were tied to the land, could be sold with it, and served at the pleasure of a feudal lord. Some form of bondage was a a pretty normal thing. Statistically, the most normal thing. Again, three quarters of all humans on the planet were in some form of bondage. Lots of different governments and organizations also took part in the late 1700s, even the Church of England who owned slaves in Barbados. Actually, it was owned by the missionary arm of the Church of England. That's not good. The plantation was known as Codrington. Christians, it turns out, were on all possible sides of the slavery debate. 
Some owned slaves, some were slaves, others transported them, some were indifferent, and still others stood up against injustice. We'll get to them soon. Right now, I'm just trying to paint a picture. We have this idea that the 17 and 1800s were this tranquil, pleasant time to be alive. I can say definitively, no, they weren't. Even the Church of England held slaves. So it's remarkable to me that the establishment church of the day in, in Britain didn't recognize this as a problem or a contradiction. That makes two of us. There were all sorts of ways to justify slavery. I did a bunch of episodes about one of them, the so-called Curse of Ham. I'll put links in your show notes. How did we transition away from this, from the majority of human beings being in some form of bondage? Let's focus on the British for this episode. How did the mightiest empire in the world in the late 1700s abandon slavery? Many Christians know the names of several of the men involved in ending the British slave trade, Newton and Wilberforce. The movie Amazing Grace tells the story of several of them. But Adam decided to focus elsewhere on a forgotten subject. You know, initially, I set out to write a book about John Newton, who is, of course, the, the most famous hymn writer in the English language, wrote Amazing Grace and all sorts of other hymns, which we still sing today. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, was himself the captain of a slave ship. And the way the story is sometimes told by mythologizers was that uh, he pursued that horrible occupation. Then he had a, a moment of conversion. And then he gave it up and came ashore and wrote these marvelous hymns and became a, a famous evangelical preacher. Makes for a nice, tidy story. Someone sees the light and realizes how terrible slavery is. That's the story we often tell because it's so uplifting, so positive. The truth is a little more complex. That isn't the way it happened. John Newton didn't come to Jesus and then give up the slave trade. He had his conversion to evangelical Christianity before he made his four transatlantic slave voyages not afterward. While transporting slaves, he was known to sneak off by himself and pray for hours, sometimes when near land, looking for a quiet place in the woods so he could be alone to pray. Then he'd gather up his stuff and go back to transporting humans into slavery. He only gave up the slave trade for medical reasons. Became the most famous evangelical preacher, preacher in England uh, wrote Amazing Grace and all these other hymns. And during the first part of that period, he still had all his savings invested in his former employer who owned a fleet of slave ships based in Liverpool. History is rarely tidy. Our heroes are often just like us, flawed. Newton spoke out against slavery for the first time when a anti-slavery committee organized in London and a young man associated with it named Thomas Clarkson. That lesser-known abolitionist I mentioned earlier. We'll talk about him in more detail in a few minutes. Clarkson came to him and said, Reverend Newton, you really have to say something. Then he wrote a forceful pamphlet. He testified before Parliament one or two times. 
And then for the remaining two decades of his life, he said absolutely nothing on the subject. He was convinced that the major sin of the day was blasphemy, not slavery. Blasphemy. Now, don't get me wrong. Blasphemy is no great habit, but it's not really on the same level as slavery. As for Newton... I don't see him as a central figure in the movement. Oh man, did that catch me off guard. But but, but the movies, the folklore, the biographies. Trouble is, his slave journeys and his life were well documented. We've been telling the story in a kind of funny way, focusing on a couple of guys like Newton who were important, but not as vital as some other figures who have been less well remembered. Today on the show, we're going to discuss one of these missing figures, Thomas Clarkson, and the way that Christians helped to bring down the slave trade in the British Empire. It's a story of journalism, courage, defiance, and hats. Yes, hats. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin. And this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Christians were on all sides of the slave trade. I'm transitioning from talking about all bondage to specifically African people being bought and sold. You're probably thinking, how can a Christian be so blind to the suffering of others? And it depends on the convictions of the people as well as their geography. The British way of doing things was different than in the U.S. In the U.K. at the time, there were not that many black people. They weren't just walking around London going to school with your kids. It was possible for you to live your whole life without seeing any black people. Not any. In the United States, slavery happened right there in the fields, in houses where servants cooked and cleaned. Black people were a part of everyday life. Britain was different. Black people were far away, doing hard labor in sugarcane fields across the oceans. All the British saw was sugar and rum, not where it came from. So how did Christians in Britain not do anything for so long? There are many reasons, but in researching this story, I found this to be really interesting. Unlike in the United States, they may not have known the scope of the slave system. How do you correct injustice when you don't know there's a problem? That's where our largely forgotten hero comes in, Thomas Clarkson. To me, the greatest hero of the story is Thomas Clarkson, who was the 
traveling organizer for the Anti-Slavery Committee. They had their first meeting on May 22, 1787. A date, I think, which is a huge landmark in the history of human rights. Okay, I'll say it again. May 22nd, 1787. Twelve people gathered together to figure out how to put an end to slavery. This meeting sparked decades of fighting to end British slavery. A whole movement started with just a dozen people. Thomas Clarkson, this guy I'm guessing you have never heard of, was at the center of it. One unusual thing about this committee, 12 men who met for the first time in this Quaker bookstore and printing shop in London, uh, a little courtyard that is still there today, although unfortunately the printing shop is not. Um, One extraordinary thing about this committee was that it was interdenominational. At that time in Britain, that was unheard of. People of different religious denominations working together for a secular cause just didn't happen. It was important because the only religious group in Britain that had taken a principled stand against slavery and had done so for several decades were the Quakers. The Quakers, otherwise known as the Society of Friends, are a religious group that was started in the 1650s in England. Essentially, they reject the ideas of clergy and liturgy. In meetings, they sit silently until someone is inspired to talk. Most important to this story, they were anti-slavery, to the point of excommunicating members who owned slaves. And actually, when some Quakers in the Americas freed their slaves, they actually paid them compensation. That's kind of amazing. Quakers paid compensation to African slaves set free. Trouble is, the Quakers were not a popular sect in Britain. People didn't take them seriously. They said thee and thou, they wore these funny hats, and they were renowned for not taking off their hat in front of anybody. Because their system of belief is built on the idea of equality, not hierarchy. Hence why they don't have clergy. Taking your hat off was a sign that someone else had higher status than you. So they kept their hats on to show that all people are equal. They also didn't have the normal days of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc., because the days were named for pagan gods. So, you know, people regarded this group as eccentric. Though they were anti-slavery, they couldn't get any political traction on their own because they were so different from the rest of society. But along came our guy, Thomas Clarkson. Clarkson saw that they were passionate in their commitment, There were a lot of them. Some of them were quite well-to-do businessmen with the ability to help fund this movement. He knew that they would need Anglicans, people of the Church of England, involved too. Members of Parliament were required to be Anglican. If they were going to get through to the people at the top, they needed to recruit people who belonged to the Church of England. On this committee, there were nine Quakers and three Anglicans. And it was one of the Anglicans who signed all the letters so that they could use the normal names of the days of the week and the days of the month. They needed each other if they were going to get the word out. Clarkson then became the traveling organizer for the committee. Which was a lot more important than it sounds. He was the go-to guy for the organization, printing information and crisscrossing the countryside on horseback to tell others. First, they needed real hard data. 
actual statistics and first-hand accounts of what the slave trade was like. If they were going to make their case, their figures had to be accurate. As I said, most people living in the British Isles at that time had never set eyes on a black person. There were only 5,000 or so blacks in Britain at this point. Many of whom were former slaves. Some years before this meeting I spoke of took place, there was a court case in England which ruled pretty definitively that someone could not be a slave within the British Isles. It didn't affect slavery in the British West Indies, which was where uh, almost all the slaves in the British Empire were then concentrated. Britons didn't generally bring slaves to England because they risked having to set them free. You couldn't be in London and own other humans, which was a contributing factor of why so few British people had encountered a black person. The abolitionists, people against slavery, had a major hurdle to clear. How could the public care about someone they didn't see? This is how they did it, 1700 style. Clarkson got on his horse and rode from town to town to town, gathering information. Tell me a story slowly and calmly. How many slaves were on a ship? Where did they sleep? What did they eat? What happened to children? How were they captured in the first place? What really moved people was personal testimony. So that's why when Clarkson went to Reverend John Newton and said, you have to say something, and Newton finally wrote a pamphlet about his experiences as the captain of a slave ship, which by this point he was feeling quite badly about, that had a big impact. They gathered all the building blocks needed to build a factual case against slavery, stuff we take for granted now. Clarkson rode horses back and forth in search of proof. And I think his memoir that describes that experience is probably the the greatest book ever written by a community organizer. He wrote books and essays and handed out literature. Setting up local committees everywhere he went and gathering witnesses who could testify firsthand about what slavery looked like when they could press parliament to have hearings. He also inspired people to boycott sugar that came from slave plantations. A movement, by the way, largely championed by women. I mean, makes sense, right? It was women who did most of the cooking in those days. Cane sugar was the number one import into Britain and between 300,000 and half a million people boycotted. Over the course of the next couple of years, that little committee invented every major technique of political organizing that we use today. I mean, the very idea of a committee with its headquarters in the nation's capital and local branches all over the country was a relatively new thing. Not to mention the interdenominational ethos of the group. They invented the first logo for a political organization. It showed a kneeling slave in chains surrounded by the legend, am I not a man and a brother? Something they stamped on the medallions that could then be worn by society women to show their support. They invented the first widely used political poster. Just one benefit of holding meetings in a print shop. And I'm sure you and your listeners have seen it. It's that image that's sort of a top-down diagram of a slave ship where you can see hundreds of bodies packed into it like sardines lying next to each other. 
This graphic laid it out clearly. Slaves on these ships were kept just two feet, eight inches apart, shoved into every possible corner. This diagram was based on actual measurements so it could hold up in court. It had a revolutionary impact. And as soon as the abolitionists saw this, they ran off 8,000 copies and put it up in pubs all over England. It was reprinted over and over again. You've probably seen it yourself. I'll also put a link to it on the website. Clarkson's job was to get this stuff out there, to change the perception everyday people had of the slave trade. As ridiculous as it sounds now, in response to this public outcry, slave-owning people went to great lengths to manufacture lies about the slave experience. One even said in a hearing that the journey to the West Indies could be the happiest time of somebody's life. According to him, slaves danced on the deck during the day, and when they tired, partook in games of chance. I mean, obvious nonsense, but slave merchants tried to dilute the truth, confuse the messaging, in order to stay in business. We see this today in political debates when politicians throw out a ton of nonsense to keep people confused and reporters chasing their tails. It's what the tobacco and oil industries did to keep regulators away in the mid-1900s. Same tricks, different era. For the abolitionists, changing public opinion was key. They did it with facts and personal accounts. There was a former slave from the West Indies, Alauda Equiano, a remarkable man who earned his freedom. That is, while being enslaved, he earned enough money on the side to buy himself from his owner, made his way to Britain, lived there for the rest of his life, and wrote a remarkable autobiography, which has been rediscovered in, in recent years. A volume that provided a first-hand look at what it was really like under the slave system. This was what moved people to action. And in some sense, all of us who are, you know, trying to do something like investigative journalism today are following in their footsteps. It's hard to convey in one short little podcast just how much work these people did. Canvassing, gathering information, holding giant meetings, standing before parliament, year after year, decade after decade. They thought they gained ground that the government was going to pass a law, and then King George went mad. And the king had to sign off on this kind of legislation. So the law was dead in the water. Then the king got a little better, so they pushed hard again. And then the French Revolution happened, and Britain was at war with France. Many Brits blamed the French for abolition talk. The two countries had been duking it out for supremacy in the West Indies. They'd been at each other's throats for a long time. So the rumors spread in London. Was the abolition movement anything more than a clever attempt by the French to ruin the British economy? No, that's silly, it wasn't, but that belief slowed down the abolition movement. It seemed like every time they gained a little ground, something came up. That must have been deeply frustrating. But they were eventually successful. There were a number of things that brought down the slave trade. One of them, of all things, was the American Revolution. Keep in mind also that the moment that this movement began, 1787 in Britain, was midway between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. 
So there were a lot of ideas about human freedom in the air. The rights citizens could have, freedom of, say, religion, speech, representative government. The revolution here was part of what sparked one in France. What wasn't clear was just how far these ideas should extend. Freedom, some people thought, was a slippery slope. You give it to one group, the next is going to want it too. The British weren't going to let their colonies in the New World go so easily. We know about the Revolutionary War, but what you may not know is that the Crown had a secret weapon against the rebels, built-in fighters on our soil. Most of those who were in the lead in, in the revolution and the movement for independence from Britain were slave owners. So in order to foil them, the British promised freedom to, not to all slaves in, in the American colonies, but promised freedom to slaves of rebel masters, that is, those who turned against Britain, if they made their way to British forces. If slaves of rebel forces fought against their masters, they could earn their freedom. Some of George Washington's own slaves did just that. I hope George taught them how to say goodbye. Sorry, that's a Hamilton joke. Freedom was in the air. First, British anti-slavery groups sprang up and disseminated information. Second, the American Revolution demonstrated that people could break free of their imperial masters. The third thing that pushed the British abolition movement forward was slave revolts in the West Indies, where white people were greatly outnumbered by their black slaves. On no island was it less than five enslaved people to one free person, and on some it was as high as 20 to one. Uh, many islands, it was 10 to 1. And of course, the people who were enslaved looked around and felt, oh, there's so many of us, there's so few of them. If we could just seize the right arms, you know, we could, we could revolt and have our freedom. It was just a matter of time. Slaves were bound to rebel. They knew what was happening in Britain because they could overhear the conversation at their master's dinner tables and so on. Uh, so there were large slave revolts in um, what today is Guiana and Barbados. And the biggest one of all came in Jamaica, uh, 1831-32. And after that revolt, colonial officials, uh, plantation officers came back and testified before parliament uh, that, uh, you know, this kind of thing is going to happen again. And next time we may not be able to contain it. For one revolt in what would later become Haiti, Great Britain sent 20,000 soldiers, 60% of which died in the five-year battle. These revolts weren't just little uprisings, but full-on wars. British leaders had to decide how long they could sustain these high body counts just to continue the slave trade. Bringing us back to missionaries. Missionaries found themselves in the middle of the battle for freedom in the West Indies none of whom had come there as anti-slavery enthusiasts. They came to preach the gospel, but then when they got there, they discovered that the planters were quite hostile to their preaching to the slaves and were especially hostile to their teaching the slaves to read and write, which the missionaries were eager to do, you know, so that the slaves could read the Bible. But they always found when they preached that uh, what the, the audience wanted to hear was the story of Moses leading his people to the promised land, to freedom. No wonder landowners didn't want the missionaries there. 
Plus, those sent to spread the gospel couldn't stay silent about what they saw. Testimonies from servants of God carried a lot of weight back in England. Remember, Thomas Clarkson and the gang were busy gathering whatever information they could. So, they disseminated the intel provided by missionaries. And missionaries sometimes paid dearly for speaking up. One was actually jailed and died in jail, and that created a tremendous ruckus in England. Because the missionary who had been locked up by the plantation owners was white. There is always a tremendous disparity in how people, we have have the same thing today, and how people react to something when it's a member of their own tribe who is being affected. What, in 1964, got President Johnson to send hundreds of troops and FBI officials to the state of Mississippi was because two white northern civil rights workers had been killed there. Black civil rights workers and organizers had been killed in Mississippi for years, and the rest of the country didn't pay much attention. Well, it was the same thing when this missionary, whose name was John Smith, died in jail in what today is Guyana. You know, there were protests in the British Parliament and uh, petitions and demands that something be done. And, you know, here was a man of God from Britain who was dying in a British jail, and this was scandalous. Uh, But of course, you know, millions of slaves had been worked to death for years in British territories before the movement began. So, yeah, there's always that disparity. To recap, the slave trade was ended because of an era of freedom, an increase in available information, the slave revolts, deaths of white missionaries, and also for the high military cost of maintaining peace in the West Indies. It took all of that to hobble the slave trade. And I'm being careful with my language there. They ended the slave trade first, not slavery. There was this idea that in ending the buying and selling of humans, the British slave system would gradually disappear. This was because slaves were not bred in the West Indies in the numbers they were in the American South. The way slavery in the Caribbean worked was, if it's possible, even more brutal than the way it worked in the American South, in that The diet fed to slaves was much worse there than they got in the American South. There was a shortage of arable land, so it was harder for them to grow vegetables and stuff like that on their own. Uh, As a result, the saying among planters was, it is better to buy than to breed. In their cold logic, it was more efficient for them to buy new slaves than to take care of the ones they already had. They could literally work the slaves to death. So the abolitionists in Britain felt, well, if we can just cut off the trade, stop those ships going to the West Indies, uh, then slavery will wither and die on its own. They were wrong, of course, because as soon as the slave was cut off, the slave trade was cut off, the planters improved the living conditions, uh, made medical clinics for the slaves, uh, hospitals, improved their diet, not out of the goodness of their hearts, but so these people would live long enough to reproduce and their children and grandchildren would provide new generations of workers for the plantations. The British government passed a law in 1807 abolishing the trade. And the abolition movement lost its thunder. Trouble is, people were still in slavery. Despite those small improvements in the quality of life, black people were still slaves in the British colonies. Bringing us back to Thomas Clarkson. 
He'd started this battle in his 20s and was one of the people who thought that ending the slave trade would end slavery. But here's what I find so inspiring about him. When the evidence came back that his work was not done, he started organizing all over again. Now in his 60s in 1824. He got back on his horse and rode the countryside once more, gathering information and spreading the word that nothing short of abolition would do. He wasn't alone. He found a great partner in someone you may already know, William Wilberforce. They were both the same age. In a sense, Clarkson was the outside man, William Wilberforce was the inside man. William Wilberforce was a member of parliament came from a very well-to-do established family. And he was, for all of his life, the, or all of his political life, the principal spokesperson in Parliament against the slave trade and against slavery. He was passionate about this. He was known for this. He spoke out very loudly, repeatedly, kept, kept introducing bills on this. He was a very different sort of man than Clarkson in that he was extremely conservative on every other issue. He believed, for instance, that the greatest menace to Britain in his day was labor unions. He felt that women had no role whatever to play in politics and was appalled when there started to be women's anti-slavery societies. But I think in a way that made him effective because it meant that his fellow members of parliament took him more seriously than they would have had he been somebody like Clarkson, who was on the radical side of every issue. These two guys, who really were very different from each other politically, were able to work together for this common cause, forming a very important partnership. But most of us don't know about Clarkson, only Wilberforce. I think the reason for that is that uh, Wilberforce, because he was an evangelical Anglican who was deeply conservative on uh, every issue other than slavery, is very much a hero for conservative evangelicals today. And uh, at the time that I was writing Bury the Chains, I counted up and there were something like 22 biographies of Wilberforce by evangelicals and only one at the time of, of Clarkson. It would not be until 1834 that slaves were given freedom. And even then, they had to work for four years as unpaid apprentices under their former masters. Full abolition didn't take place until August 1st, 1838, a full quarter century before the same could be said about the United States. 51 years after that first meeting in a printing shop, slavery was finally over in Britain. Starting with just 12 men, it blossomed into multiple waves of public support. Boycotting sugar, gathering intelligence, slave uprisings, and the death of untold thousands. Still, it was far from over. Once slaves were freed, there was a lot of disagreement about what to do with them after that. The battle for equal opportunities continues to this day. While many white people in Britain supported abolition on the other side of the world, it was quite another thing to give that person a job or seat their kids in schools next to white children. Some abolitionists thought it best to send black people back to Africa to start their own colony. I'll tell more about that colony on Africa as a bonus episode to my patrons. 
I wanted to share this story for a number of reasons. First, to demonstrate what happens when people work together across denominational lines to undo systematic injustice. Second, to point out the value of a case made well. One of the most powerful tools these abolitionists used was clear truth. They could point to the size of the slaveholds, the conditions on the ships and in the plantations, death rates and eyewitness accounts to make their case. There is something to be said for gathering information. Finally, I wanted to spread the word about Thomas Clarkson, the tireless canvasser, writer, and agitator. We remember William Wilberforce and John Newton, but not Clarkson. There are reasons for that. Wilberforce had two very influential sons. One was chaplain to Queen Victoria, and one was a bishop. They wrote a five-volume biography of their father, which endeavors to essentially relegate Clarkson to an extremely minor role in the movement. And Clarkson did historians no favors because he destroyed most of his papers. We need to know this guy's name, the one who devoted so much of his life to ending injustice. He was the only one of the original 12 men who met in that printing shop that lived to see abolition. You know, I mentioned it when we first started talking, and I said one of the things that made the Quakers considered oddballs in England was that they wore these very distinctive hats, and they would not remove them uh, except when they preached or prayed. And uh, there were actually legal cases where a Quaker had refused to take off his hat before the king and was sent to jail. I think that was in the previous century, the 17th. You know, they were known for not taking off their hats except in church. But for Clarkson's funeral procession, there were many Quakers there and they removed their hats. Special thanks to Adam Hochschild. The book we discussed in this episode is called Bury the Chains. It is excellent and easy to read, as is his other volume, King Leopold's Ghost, which I'll cover soon. I'll have links to his books on the website at trucepodcast.com. Most Christian podcasts are sermons or people sharing their testimonies, which is great. But I'm trying to do something different. Provide in-depth historic research into topics that impact us today. My goal is to do this thing full-time. Your financial gifts help me upgrade equipment and allow me to take fewer hours at my day job so I can focus on this project. And if you become a patron of the show, you'll gain access to bonus materials not heard anywhere else. Visit trucepodcast.com for more details. God willing, we'll talk again in two weeks. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.